and welcome back to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael and I am your host and I'm going to start with an apology. I'm going to apologize because uh, in my haste to get out of the door and out of town a couple weeks ago, I set up uh, our last show, uh, Mary's First Deer. If you haven't listened to that, it is a good one. I highly recommend you go back and listen to it. Um, Set it up and in my haste and and busyness and and my hurry getting out the door i actually published it a week of head ahead of time so so now we've passed uh a couple more weeks and i think we're we're back uh to our regular scheduled programming at this point so i apologize for that scheduling snafu um but hey no big deal um the shows are still coming out and you're still still getting all of them uh let's see so last time uh i talked with you all uh, I let you know that I was headed out of town, going to Costa Rica with my family, and <clears throat> and and I probably jinxed myself because I, I talked about how much I wanted to catch a giant tarpon on a fly rod. These fish are amazing. In Central America, they run hundreds of miles inland into fresh water in these small jungle rivers where you can pursue, you know, 200-pound fish with, with, with a fly rod. Man, I, I, I was so excited about it. Uh, alas, though, it did not work out for me. Uh, I put in two full days, and in those two days, the river was up in the color of chocolate milk. I, 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 you know, I never even got close to a fish. It was almost an impossibility to hook one in those conditions. Um, in fact, at one point, um, I was sitting there throwing my fly blindlessly, and a giant, and I mean giant, the largest fish I've ever seen in my life, tarpon, I think was kind of blinded in the, the muddy water and he was trying to get around the snag sticking up out of the middle of the river and in his attempt to get around it his whole body almost came out of the water and oh oh my gosh yeah it was exciting but also depressing i wish i had never seen that fish because uh, yeah for a couple days after that i was yeah, I was i was in a bad way but i've bounced back looking forward to going back down there hopefully next year and trying again otherwise though um i did get a beautiful, probably oh, five-pound machaca. Uh, it's, a, it's a river fish in Central America that, that are so much fun. And you can get on top water using big poppers uh, that imitate a fruit, a jungle fruit that falls into the water. But anyway, that's not Arizona. Don't want to spend too much time on it. But I wanted to let you know what happened. It was a great trip otherwise. I had a wonderful time with my family. A great adventure. But I'm back. Back in Arizona. Excited to be here. Um, you know, I, I love these mountains up here in northern Arizona. I love the deserts. Uh, you know, this is home. And while I enjoy getting away from it all, I certainly enjoy coming back to it. All right. Well, today's show, today's show, um, it, it's kind of a serving two purposes. Uh, this is a part of our affiliate spotlight series because we're going to highlight one of our affiliates. And that's Scottsdale Ducks Unlimited. And but not only that, we're going to tell you a bit about Scottsdale Ducks Unlimited, but also we're going to go all in to waterfowl hunting in Arizona. Um, I've talked to a lot of a lot of folks moving to the state um, and a lot of people that haven't done any waterfowl hunting and want to get into it. And there's always a lot of questions on on how to do it, how to do it out here in the desert. Um, it seems like a, you know, a, a part of hunting that's a little bit difficult to get into for some folks. So this is going to be a very valuable episode. And as you'll see, our guest Colin, or I should say, as you will hear, our guest Colin is just, he is an exceptional waterfowler. Um, it's basically all he does. Um, I mean, he does do some other wing shooting, some other hunting, but Colin is a waterfowler through and through. Not just during hunting season, it's on his mind. Um, he's working on blinds. He's scouting year-round. Uh, the man is, has an encyclopedic knowledge of the waterfowl here in Arizona. So um, this is, uh, this is I think this is a special episode, uh, and you, you don't just get this kind of information everywhere. So I, I hope you enjoy it. You're certainly going to learn a lot. I promise you that. So stick around for Scottsdale Ducks Unlimited and and waterfowl here in Arizona. Before we get into that, though, let's go through a few announcements from our great conservation organizations in this beautiful state. <clears throat> All right, right off, we have Arizona Predator Callers. On December 8th at 7 p.m., they are having a meeting that will feature uh, a presentation by local gunsmith and predator hunter Steve Crooks. Uh, this is open to the public. Please come to the meeting at the FOP Lodge at 1452 East Main Street, Mesa, Arizona. 
Next up, Be Outdoors Arizona. They are hosting an open house uh, replete with a taco bar, drinks, live music. Some partners will be there um, and they'll display uh, have displays such as an ATV tour company, fly casting demos, a raptor rescue group that allows you to actually pet the birds, face painting, some product demos, touch and feel table of furs, antlers, horns, and other desert finds. There will be a raffle for the kids and one for the adults. It is for families, outdoor recreation businesses, and anyone who wants to learn about exploring and taking care of Arizona's open spaces. That sounds like a blast. You're not going to want to miss that. I mean, hell, they have a taco bar. Let's see. This is December 17th, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. at Soul Industrial at 16th Street in Bell Road in Phoenix. I will leave a link below for more information on that. Then we have from Valley of the Sun Quail Forever. Uh, They are having the third annual Women's Gamble Hunt Weekend. This is January 13th through the 15th, Arizona Game and Fish Department, Horseshoe Ranch. That's I-17 to Bloody Basin Road. Go east for about five miles. You can't miss the ranch. It says, the special weekend gambles quail hunt just for the ladies. It's more than just learning and experiencing hunting and outdoor skills. Though, as you will share moments of generosity and kindness, that will surely forge lifetime friendships. Arrive on Friday, January 13th at the Arizona Game and Fish Department Horseshoe Ranch. Clay pigeon shooting on Saturday morning to get you warmed up for hunting. Quail hunting on Saturday afternoon and Sunday morning. Optional hunt on Sunday afternoon. The cost is $25 if you are a valid Quail Forever member. $35 if currently a non-member. But we will use that money for your new Quail Forever membership. It's limited to 15 women hunters. Uh, Valley of the Sun Quail Forever members with hunting dogs will assist the lady hunters. Accommodations are available at Arizona Game and Fish Ranch for Friday and Saturday night. Some limited RV dry camping space will also be available. Any additional questions, please contact Heather Payson at 480 415-2674. Additional info will be given to those who registered. So, uh, hunting, it it doesn't belong to the fellas. Um, (laughs) Anyone, you know, uh, can do this. Um, But sometimes uh, the entry uh, is a little bit tougher for gals because it can be hard to find other gals to hunt with. So, yeah, if you're a lady who is interested in hunting or has maybe done a little hunting already and wants to get out and meet some other gals. This sounds like the event for you. So again, look for more information below in the show notes for information on that. And then finally, uh, the Arizona Game Fish Department Outdoor Skills Network. Those guys do a lot of work to uh, make sure and get all of the outdoor um, and conservation events and opportunities posted up on their network. And, um, you know, we, we only get a fraction of them here that I get to tell you about. Uh, but I know that there are several camps going on that need mentors, primarily the spring for javelina and turkey. So get on the Arizona Out Game and Fish Outdoor Skills Network and check those out. Um, help help somebody out. Help a kid out. Help somebody that... that is new to hunting out. Uh, it's a great thing to do, and it's a lot of fun, and it's very rewarding. I'll have that link uh, below as well. All right, that's all I got for you in this intro. I uh, I know you're going to enjoy this show with Colin. Um, he Again, he's a wealth of information, and I'm lucky. I'm very lucky to have a buddy like him because I don't... Well, I like to hunt everything. Um, I get as excited about squirrels as I do about elk, as I do about dove, as I do about ducks. So um, I'm lucky to have a friend like that who uh, who is that knowledgeable. And, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll share some of that with me. So enjoy the show. I'll see you after. Thanks. All right, Colin, welcome. It's nice to have you here, man. Happy to be here. How are you guys doing today? Not too bad. I'm sitting here in the uh, uh, Flagstaff Public Library's conference room because uh, I get better sound quality here than I do at my own house and better internet. And there's a there's a big whiteboard on the uh, behind me. I don't, can you see me? I don't know if you can see me. Yes, I can see you. <laughs> All right. In that case, I was going to draw a duck back there for you, but um, they didn't provide markers, so I'm sorry. Oh dang! I, I would have been settled for 
EU duckhead. That would have stare at a plain, plain white board. All right. Well, in full disclosure, um, Colin's a friend of mine, um, and uh, he's he's a heavy hitter in the conservation arena, and. Yeah, w- without, you know, trying to, to fluff up Colin here, he is the absolute most dedicated, best waterfowler I know. Um, so with that, Colin, how about you take a moment, introduce yourself, tell us who you are, where you're from, um, you know, how you're involved in conservation, that sort of thing. Well, that's uh, that's quite the introduction to start off with, I guess. But uh, my name is Colin Shepard. And most importantly, I am the area chairman for the Scottsdale Ducks Unlimited chapter here in Arizona. Um, I run the local Arizona, the local Scottsdale chapter, and obviously we're part of a bigger network here in Arizona and New Mexico. And that's what we do on the conservation side of things. Um, We spend a lot of our time here locally on the ground, working with businesses, individuals, and families um, to ultimately fundraise to provide a better future for ducks and most importantly, duck hunters as well, too. So as you mentioned, um, I'm a pretty avid waterfowler, despite the fact that we live here in Arizona, where most of people imagine the Sonoran Desert. And I'll tell you this much, they're not wrong. Most of our duck hunts are silhouetted with beautiful saguaro cactuses. We have barbed wire fences and pretty much everything else you can imagine with the wild, wild west when you think of that. Right, right. Yeah, I don't imagine most people associate good waterfowling with the Southwest and you know, I will get into this a little bit more later, but, you know, I guess good waterfowling um, could be a relative term here. I, I think it's good for you because you put in the hard work uh, to make it good. But for others, you know, it might be a struggle. But let's talk more about that later. I, I want to talk about Scottsdale Ducks Unlimited. Um, I know that you guys, uh, you mentioned your your fundraising, which is an, a very important aspect in, in all conservation. But what else do you do with Scottsdale Ducks Unlimited? The big focus for our local chapter here is fundraising, and we do that through a handful of ways. Um, We have a couple local events that we host every year. Um, The big one is our annual banquet, which is actually coming up on Saturday, December 10th. Um, In addition to the fundraising efforts that we provide, we're also pretty big about getting families and kids out into the community and getting them started with waterfowl hunting as well, too. Um, that's obviously a big push of Ducks Unlimited is making sure that there are ducks for the future, just like there are duck hunters for the future as well. So earlier this year, we hosted the, um, I'm going to go ahead and call it the Mountain Opener Youth Season. Um, if you put all those words together, it basically means that Arizona has a mountain zone that opens early, similar to other states like teal zones, not quite that early. And uh, we went ahead and planned the hunt, sponsored it, and ended up taking out four families with their youth hunters as well, too. So making sure the kids had decoys, blinds, a good place to, that was scouted out to hunt. And most importantly, that was really cool because the hunt itself took place on one of the DU-funded wetlands that we have locally here in Arizona. Um, it's the Pintail Lake Complex up at Bicholo, Arizona. So in addition to the fundraising we do, we also host and sponsor these youth hunts throughout the state. Um, The one that Scottsdale is directly associated with is the Mountain Zone. That's up, like I mentioned earlier. And then we have another Mm -hmm. one coming up the first week of December, and that's going to be out at Cibola National Wildlife Refuge. So same thing again, the local Ducks Unlimited chapters help and sponsor along with one of the local hunting clubs. Um, basically making sure the kids have a good time out there. Um, the last one coming up is going to be the youth only season, which takes place first week in February after the regular duck season's done. And that's going to be hosted down at Whitewater Draw by the local Sierra Vista Ducks Unlimited chapter as well. So in addition to a lot of the fundraising efforts we have here locally, you know, giving back and making sure that there are future duck hunters to uh, enjoy the passion with is, is a big part of our cause as well. That's awesome. I, I like the way you, you mentioned, you know, making sure that we have ducks in the future as well as duck hunters. Um, and it, it might be lost on some folks. So those two things are synonymous. If we don't have duck hunters, if we don't have those, those guys out there with this intense interest in these animals and their habitat, they don't do as well. Um, you know, we don't have the habitat. We don't have all those guys working hard on these projects to to make sure we we have good waterfowl habitat and, and good waterfowl numbers. So it, it's an interesting point that I think some people might miss. 
you're completely right about that. And, you know, we as conservationists have done a very good job of funding our self-interests. Now, thankfully, our right. self-interests also happen to be the self-interests of society, making sure we have robust wildlife populations, good diversity, you know, healthy populations and species. Um, but you hit really hit the nail on the head, whether it's, you know, the Pittman-Robertson Act or the, you know, the duck stamp um, basically fee that we all pay as hunters. Um, it's really important to make sure that there are hunters out there to help fund the future success and the future projects that will need to happen. Right, right. Well, another thing I'd like you to elaborate on a little bit um, is your your banquet. Your, um, can you talk a bit about that? I'd love to. How people could get involved, find out about it, what's going on there? Yeah, of course, I'd love to. So we are hosting the annual fundraising banquet. It's kind of our big deal coming up here in Scottsdale. Um, it's going to be on Saturday, December 10th and hosted at the Embassy Suites, which is kind of locally known as like Old Town Scottsdale area. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be an awesome event. Um, every year we have a heck of a lot of fun. It's a great success. And most importantly, you know, we're raising tens of thousands of dollars that we're putting back directly into wildlife habitat and conservation and getting the future excited about duck hunting as well. Um, this year we have, you know, uh, multiple prizes. We have waterfowl hunts. We have international hunts. Um, there's a bunch of gear, decoys, um, pretty much everything the waterfowl hunter could need. And in addition to that, we have a couple cool green wing programs going on to help benefit the, uh, the local youth hunters as well, too. Um, if you're interested and would like to attend, um, you can find us on the website at www.azdu.org, and you can find all the event details and such there. Um, if you have any questions, I'm sure you can reach out and uh, do a quick Google search to get you there as well, too. That's awesome, man. Good work. So if uh, if somebody's interested in, um, actually, I guess you probably already mentioned this with how to get involved with the uh, the uh, banquet. Um, but the, the easiest way to, to get involved with Scottsdale Ducks Unlimited. And answer me this. So to become a member of a particular chapter of Ducks Unlimited, um, do people join up nationally and they're kind of automatically assigned based on where they live? Yep. So a couple different options. Um, we are in Scottsdale, so obviously we have a pretty big population here, but we also have a lot of our snowbirds who like to migrate just like the ducks do. Mm -hmm. So we have a handful of individuals who might reside primarily out of the state that are still, you know, a part of our overall chapter itself. Okay, um, I see. But really, it's going to be the, the local kind of area that you're in as well, too. A um, bunch of different ways to be involved with DU. The most important is just becoming a member. Um, we offer annual memberships that you can buy one off. I usually send you like a nice little gift, a sweater or a little duffel bag or something like that as a thank you. Or the easier way to become involved with DU is to attend one of the banquets. Every single one of our banquets or events always comes with an annual membership, oh. um, which is a really cool way just to make sure that, you know, you're involved, you're giving back and you're staying up to date with a lot of the cool news and information. Right. Um, if you want to, if you want to take it a step farther, um, we do have banquet sponsors, whether you're a business or an individual family, um, those contributions go directly back towards the conservation efforts in terms of, you know, purchasing habitat. Um, and then the, uh, the third option is to help actually come out and volunteer. Um, we always need people to help plan these events. We need help, you know, manpower on the ground to move items, set things up and, you know, ultimately make sure that everybody else is having a good time as well, too. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, you know, shamefully, I'll, I'll admit I have not made it to one of these banquets yet. Um, I do plan on attending, but I, I hear from mutual friends of ours. That they're an absolute blast and I know they really enjoy them. So, yeah, I would encourage folks to get out there. Um, and I, that's a nice bonus. that The membership comes with it. It is. It is. It's a really easy way to get involved. And for what it's worth, it's a fun night out as well, too. Right on. Well, you know, I want to I want to get into kind of more nuts and bolts of, of waterfowl hunting. But let's let's since keeping on the conservation theme. Let's talk about just waterfowl in Arizona. Um, you know, to some folks that might come as a shock uh, that we do have enough waterfowl to hunt here. But could you talk about a little bit of the natural history of, of our waterfowl in general, where they're coming from, where they're going? Um, do we have resident ducks, resident geese? What, what's going on with the birds here in our state? Of course, of course. 
So to start things out on a macro level, Arizona is situated basically directly between two flyways, being the Pacific Flyway and the Central Flyway. And if you're a waterfowl hunter, you know that waterfowl in the United States is generally regulated on a flyway basis. And that's going to tell you what types of species of ducks, how they're going to migrate, and primarily what they're going to be doing, depending on what flyway you're in. Um, it also has to do a lot with the regulations and the rules as well, too. So ducks in Arizona, I'll be candid with you, they're lost. I don't know how else way to say it, but they're, they're a little lost. They're, it's <laughs> not your typical migration corridor where you're expecting to see, you know, millions of ducks showing up every year or hundreds of thousands of geese. But because we're situated because between the Pacific and the Central Flyway, we get a pretty cool mix of birds in general. Mm -hmm. um, from, again, a, a high-level macro standpoint, we have a couple big um, river systems that flow through the state, and that's really going to dictate a lot of the waterfowl action that we see. Um, as everybody's familiar, we have the Colorado River, which flows on the western side of our state and primarily creates the boundary between Nevada and Arizona and California and Arizona as well, too. Um, that Colorado River Flyway is going to hold the vast majority of the ducks that our state sees. Um, because the Colorado River is utilized for irrigation and water drinking source, it's very controlled with a number of reservoirs up and down the river itself. Um, number of reservoirs and thousands and maybe even millions of people living along it as well, too. They have a need to go ahead and clean that water out and make sure it stays nice and fresh. Mm -hmm. So part of that, we have a huge wetlands complex system that runs up and down the Colorado River system. And that's what a lot of these ducks utilize for the winter habitat. Um, because we're in Arizona, most of our ducks are migrators, if you will. They come from the quote unquote up north itself. Um you know, I say that because our northern birds could very well be somebody else's local birds since we're so far south. Right. So we do have a handful of species that do breed in Arizona. And the two most prominent that are local breeders to Arizona would be the cinnamon teal and the Mexican mallard. Um, cinnamon teal is on everybody's bucket list. They have a bright chestnut red chest. Uh -huh. um, you can see them from miles away to the point that they almost look black flying through the sky, such a dark red. And then you have your Mexican duck, which happens to be very fond of my heart. Behaves much like a mallard, looks like a mallard, but when you get it under the microscope, actually happens to be its own species of duck when it was recently given that distinction in the last couple of years. And just an absolute beautiful species of animal. Right. Yeah. So for what we might make up in, in general numbers of ducks, uh, well, we make up with unique species here, huh? Because people are reason to travel to the Southwest. That's for sure. We have some absolute unique species here, especially in Arizona. And then, um, as you mentioned as well, too, great destination to travel to when it comes to waterfowl hunting. Um, by the time all the ducks happen to make it down this far south, they, uh, they they happen to have beautiful plumage. So every duck that you see in a picture book is basically the, what it looks like when it shows up here in our rivers and our lakes. Wow. All right. So you mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned the rivers um, are kind of the, the, the main thoroughfares for our waterfowl. But what other habitats do they utilize in our state? I mean, I've seen pictures of you, you know, with, with mallards in the middle of an agricultural field. Yep. Yep. So that's another cool part of Arizona is the diverse um, hunting conditions and you know, habitat itself. Um, as I mentioned, river systems are really going to dictate where these ducks are going to concentrate. Um, same thing with rivers. I'm also going to go ahead and include our reservoirs and our lakes in that as well, too. Um, with that being said, these ducks get hungry. They got to eat. And it might not be as cold in Arizona as it is in North Dakota, but when wintertime hits, it's kind of a switch that flips on, and these ducks decide to start feeding a little bit harder. So that's typically when you're going to see them driving to some of the agricultural air fields and that kind of stuff. Um, we don't have corn in Arizona like other states have corn, um, which is kind of an interesting deal. When most duck hunters think of hunting fields or agricultural areas, they think of these beautiful fields of, <clears throat> you know, uh, harvested corn, or maybe there might be some standing corn or flooded corn, whatever you might want to hunt. 
And that's just not the case here in Arizona. So it's a little bit different when it comes to agricultural fields. Um, a, a lot of the stuff that we're hunting is alfalfa or winter forage for the cattle and the dairy operations out here as well. So a little bit different than your typical duck hunt in a field, but nonetheless, we, uh, we do still have birds used in some of those agricultural areas. Right. Well, I, I would suspect uh, here in the Southwest with our limited water supply that, that habitat here is, I guess maybe I should say the conservation of waterfowl habitat here in our state is absolutely critical. Can you speak to some of the challenges um, that waterfowl face when it comes to habitat and maybe some of the things that we can do to, to combat that or improve it? Of course, I'd love to. Um, you hit the nail on the head, water. Water is what waterfowl needs to survive. And it also happens to be one of the largest issues facing the southwestern United States and especially Arizona. So as the population grows across the country, namely the city of Phoenix, um, we need more water, whether that's for golf courses, whether that's for watering lawns, whether that's for drinking, we need more water. And unfortunately, not more of it has fallen from the sky like we need. So as many local Arizonans know, um, our reservoirs get low. They, uh, they get shockingly you know, scary levels. Um, we're dealing with issues and cutbacks from the Colorado River itself, um, you know, really even on a federal level as well, too. So the number one issue that Arizona waterfowl faces is the prevalence of water on the landscape itself. Mm -hmm. Now, thankfully, we've done a very good job as a state and as a group for producing basically man-made waterfowling opportunities, whether it's pumping agricultural ponds along the Colorado River system itself um, with you know, irrigation water, um, or a, a big part of our waterfowling opportunity is the recharge water. Um, coming from cities, basically, and they're flowing that water through, um, you know, a wetlands complex to clean it all up, returning it to the river systems and providing an opportunity for waterfowl and waterfowlers um, to have a little extra habitat as well. That's awesome. The, uh, the second, it's kind of a, a two-pronged attack, right? Obviously, water is the biggest issue, but the second biggest issue is just population in Arizona itself. Um, we're a growing state. Um, Phoenix, Scottsdale area is a growing city itself. And if you look at a time lapse from like, let's say 1990 until 2020, mm -hmm. it is shocking to see the amount of habitat and agricultural land that is being consumed by the industrial complex and residential areas on a year in year out basis. Um, you can almost call me like one of those old men who drives by on the highway, you know, pointing over to the kids saying, look at those fields over there. You know, I used to chuck trucks out of those fields and now it's suburbia and it's like a school that kids are living in. Um, so that's really the issue. You know, every single year we, you lose hundreds and hundreds of acres, um, but essentially to development. And it's a, you know, it's a tough battle. It's not just something that the ducks are facing, but it's a big issue that the, you know, the, the elk are facing, the deer are facing. Um, and even the, you know, the, uh, the, the Southern small games, you know, the rabbit and the quail hunters are facing as well too. It's just that continued residential and commercial expansion. Right. That That is tough. Um, you know, I've only been in Arizona for 10 years and, and I've seen the significant, significant expansion. Uh, and I talked to folks that have been here, you know, the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, and it's shocking. Uh, you know, the, the, the places that, you know, the towns that I drive around were, were places they hunted, you know. Um, yeah. The, the places, it's, it's grown. It's grown rapidly. And, you know, I moved here. I moved here from the Midwest, so so I, I can't really complain that much. You know, I'm part of the problem here, but but I understand the issue. It's funny you say that. You, uh, you might be part of the problem, but you're also part of the solution as well. Um, a huge way to combat, you know, that urban expansion, which I hate to say it is, it, it's inevitable. It's not something that any of us could stop, nor would we want to stop it. But making sure that as people move here, they understand the importance that water, you know, water and wildlife has to the you know, local Arizonans as well. So whether it's, you know, helping out on the conservation side or just being aware and, you know, making sure that your voice matters when it comes to deciding some of those bigger projects. Just because there's more people living in the state doesn't mean that we have to give up the quality of the wildlife and the habitat that we have here. And quite frankly, more people moving here means more funding opportunities to produce some of these waterfowl refuges, you know, these wildlife areas that really are going to be so ever critical in the future. Yeah, very good points, Colin. Thank you. Thank you for that. 
Um, let's talk about species species assemblage. Uh, we've already talked about Mexican ducks, cinnamon teal, and, and how they're kind of a specialty down here. But what what does a regular you know mixed bag look like? You know what are our common birds, and what are some other more uncommon birds that we see? Yep. So starting at the top with most of America, um, our number one harvested bird is going to be that mallard um, duck. Um, that is kind of your iconic duck species. The drake or the male has that bright green head with uh, the, the blue stripes on its wings um, and then a, kind of a, a dark chestnut chest. Um, hen is going to be more drab brown, kind of that camouflage color. And that is just our number one duck just basic, based off of primary numbers that are flying through the state. Um, the second is, and this is kind of a cool one, um, we're seeing it more and more actually over the last 10 years. And uh, our waterfowl biologist, for example, is, uh, is working on figuring out why are they coming here and where are they coming from. But that would be the widgeon duck, which uh, is a whistling duck. He's a kind of a cool guy. Um, so those are going to be our two most prevalent ducks here in Arizona, the mallard and the widgeon. And then from there, it kind of starts to taper off on a year-in, year-out basis, just depending on what the migration is doing. Um, we see a lot of teal, um, primarily being green-winged teal, cinnamon teal, and occasional blue-winged teal. Um, we have a good amount of gadwall. Mm -hmm. And then um, the last dabbling duck that we see is going to be your northern shoveler or the uh, the so loved spoonie. Um, on the diving duck side of thing, the most common is going to be the ringneck duck. And that's really based off the habitat that we have here in Arizona. Um, a lot of the Arizona hunting that takes place is on small cattle tanks that might only be, you know, two to three acres large. And so those smaller ducks can get in and out of the smaller diving ducks, I should say, can get on and off those tanks without quite as much of a runway needed as if it was like a bluebill or a canvas back. Mm -hmm. um, we do have a handful of scout um, that's, you know, bluebills, whether they're graders or lessers on the Colorado River system. But here in central Arizona, they're a little bit more of a rarity. And then, um, of course, we have redheads. We have some canvas backs as well. And then um, a handful of golden eye and some of the other smaller divers that, uh, that like to show up on the big lakes as well, too. So all in all, we've got a pretty cool variety of ducks. Um, pretty much every duck that you could want to see, um, we have. Now, of course, we're not getting, you know, the, the, the sea ducks that are going to be either on the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but aside from that, we've got most of the dabblers. Um, we've got a lot of the cool divers as well. And then we do get um, the three primary species of geese being Canada geese, um, snow geese, and um, you know, greater speckled bellies as well, too. But those guys are going to be a little bit more rare in comparison with the ducks themselves. Yeah, yeah. Now, what about wood ducks? I, I know we've done some work here in the state to improve habitat. Are we seeing more wood ducks or, or is, there, is there a trend there in their population? That would be a good one for the biologists. Mm -hmm. I don't have the data off the top of my head, but I have my fingers crossed sitting here that we are going to start seeing more wood ducks. Um, as you alluded to, um, Ducks Unlimited is doing a little bit of work with the state of Arizona biologists themselves, and we have a wood duck program up and running. Um, I don't know if I'm permitted to say where it's happening mm -hmm. um, on the, uh, the, the air right now, if you will. But one of our river systems, um, we are looking to restore some of the wood duck population. Um, it was actually a program that they ran in the late 90s and early 2000s, and it was wildly successful. Um, funding was lost. A lot of the volunteer work was lost, and so did the kind of the population. Um, but we've got an awesome habitat area for them, and we're doing our darnest to go ahead and get some of them back on the map. That's cool. With that being said, it's all just, you know, uh, anecdotal evidence, but we are starting to see more and more wood ducks being taken um, in the state of Arizona. So, you know, I don't know if that, you know, correlates with a true biological survey and study, but it does seem like we're starting to see more and more in the state. Um, those wood ducks, along with the pintails, are going to be, you know, a little bit more on the rare side, but they are harvested here in the state itself. Yeah. Yeah. They're a beautiful bird, man. Um, they were so common back in the Midwest where I come from. Um, and I really regret not, not pursuing them there, but I didn't. So hopefully, hopefully I can find one here in Arizona someday. I hear they're a delicious duck as well. 
Yes, they are. I, uh, I'm right there with you. I, I, I have not really run into them here in Arizona, and I do have my fingers crossed that the uh, the little study takes place and we get a good population of here up and running in the next couple of years. All right. Hey, let's move into actually actually hunting these birds. Um, and let's kind of take this from from a beginner's standpoint, um, either somebody who's who's interested in getting into to duck hunting that's already a resident here or somebody moving from, you know, a state out east that that's a duck hunter already and they want to continue hunting ducks here in the state. It's it's I get uh, questions from from folks that have just moved here asking, you know, how, how to do this. And it's, it's always tough because you want to help people. But at the same time. Spots are limited here, and and you know all all of my spots um, have come from from you and and buddies that uh, I'm not I can't share those. You know, uh, uh, other people have put in the hard work of finding those, and um, you know you can't just it's kind of an unwritten code among hunters. You can't just give away your buddy's spots. So how do you advise people that have just moved here um, about finding locations to hunt? My best answer is find somebody local that you can make friends with, help out from an effort standpoint, and kind of be included in the group itself. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, that's an easy answer for regardless of what state you move to. Um, but Arizona alone is going to be one of the highest proportion states of public land to private land when it comes to duck hunting opportunities itself. So vast majority of all of our duck hunting opportunities are going to take place on public land, um, and we got a lot of it, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. So scouting is going to be the name of the game, driving miles, miles in the boat, miles in the kayak, whatever that might be, and figuring out where these ducks want to concentrate. Now, to actually provide some real advice, more so than just, oh, go find somebody who knows what they're doing, um, we have uh, a handful of different options when it comes to duck hunting. Um, the first is going to be kind of the, the refuge system itself, which many West Coast duck hunters are familiar with, where there are established waterfowl refuges that are managed specifically for ducks and geese. Um, you can usually draw for a blind earlier in the season, or if you're feeling lucky, you can show up day of and go ahead and just, you know, hope that somebody doesn't and you have a place to hunt. Um, joking aside, pretty much every day you want to show up, you can walk in and have a good opportunity. Um, most of these wildlife refuges themselves. So with that, it's just going to be a numbers game. You know, if there's a lot of ducks on the refuge, your blind will very much likely see some bird action itself. Um, if not, if you're, you know, off time, migration, you know, isn't on and there aren't birds flying, then, you know, it might be a little bit leaner of a day with, you know, one or two birds in the bag, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, aside from the established refuge systems that we have, we have a, a, a handful of lakes that run along the river systems is basically water storage reservoirs. Um, the big river system that we have here in Arizona is going to be the Salt River system, which includes the Lower Salt River and includes Saguaro Lake, Canyon Lake, Apache Lake, and then Roosevelt Lake as well, too. Um, there's a couple of rivers um, north of that being like Bartlett and Horseshoe Lake. And that's really going to be where a lot of the duck hunting in the central Arizona area takes place. Um, if you go up to our mountain zone, which is kind of more north and eastern area, um, that's going to be your mountain setting, which does have, I'm not going to call them alpine lakes, but it does have some high you know, elevation lakes up there, which do tend to freeze up in early December itself. Mm -hmm. So hunting up there can be really good opportunities as well. And the coolest thing is that whether you're in the mountains, whether you're in the desert, whether you're along the Colorado River, there's a lot of public land to be found. Um, on the lakes themselves, ducks need food. That is the driving factor of their whole life. Food and safety, I should say. And with a lot of these ducks being dabbler ducks or puddle ducks, they can't dive that deep in the water to go find food. They can't go get snails or little crustaceans or even little fish. So they're really limited to about 18 inches of water at most. Now, with the, with the setup of a lot of the Arizona lakes, we have deep reservoirs that are good for water storage, not so good for lakes. So these ducks are really going to concentrate along the coves, the washes, and then um, the inlets that are feeding into the lakes themselves as well, too. Um, because water levels in Arizona fluctuate so much throughout the year, 
it actually provides a lot of changing habitat for these ducks. It exposes timber, it exposes dead trees, it exposes all kinds of bushes and shrubs, mm-hmm. um, and really provides a unique environment for the uh, those little rascals. Um, the river systems, um, namely being the Salt River, is a really cool duck hunting opportunity. Um, not only are you very likely to see some of the Salt River quote-unquote wild horses, um, but it's a really cool backdrop with some of the red rock cliffs and the uh, the saguaro cactus as well, too. And that river system is primarily driven by the submergent vegetation that ducks can access when they drop the water levels artificially in the wintertime um, based off of irrigation and uh, overall consumption needs. So that's a really cool place, um, all public land, and just provides a huge opportunity for your average walk-in waterfowl hunter. Now, to go back to it, scouting is key. Just because you know the name or a place on a map does not mean that you can show up and find a good place to go shoot some ducks. Um, You know, making sure that you show up, you know, 30 minutes before the sunrise to go ahead and scout watch to see where they're flying, watch to see where they're actually feeding and wanting to land. And most importantly, in Arizona, watching to find out where there aren't other hunters. Because we're so limited on the amount of water, so are the ducks. And unfortunately, so are the hunters. Um, Even though we don't have a lot of duck hunters in the state of Arizona, it seems like there is a lot of pressure on some of these public land areas, which happens to be inevitable. Right. So hopefully that provides a, a little bit of insight to some of the hunting. Um, if you want to take it, you know, a step further, we uh, we have some great relationships with the uh, the local farming community, and uh, we we help protect their crops from those uh, the ducks that like to eat them. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with geese as well too. And then technically it falls into the waterfowl category, although it isn't really a waterfowl species itself. And that would be the sandhill crane that shows up in southeastern Arizona every year on the Wilcox Playa itself. Um, Those guys are a completely different game. Um, Primarily, you're hunting agricultural fields that they're feeding in or like little water uh, roost areas themselves. Um, But again, you know, I do want to mention that because that is one of the more iconic species of waterfowl when it comes to Arizona. Yeah, that's that's such a fun hunt too. You know, such a unique opportunity and and such a delicious bird. Um, you know, it's the the entry and I, I you know I'll I'll just use this as a segue. Um, getting into you know how to do this, I, I feel like gear um, and equipment. I feel like waterfowl hunting can be an equipment heavy endeavor, and I think that might be a, a roadblock to a lot of uh, would be waterfowlers. Can we talk about some techniques? I, I know we, we've got a couple ways to get after ducks here in Arizona that does, don't require doesn't require anything but a shotgun. But can we go into some of the techniques on how to how to get after these animals? Sure. So the first one, um, and you know, I guess go ahead and talk about what you alluded to initially is just jumping tanks that we have here in Arizona, or just jumping ducks out of canals and other some of the small water areas themselves. Um, Arizona itself is a huge ranching um, community, which means that all of the desert areas are pretty well built up to um, store water throughout the calendar year. Um, In the wintertime, when the ducks migrate, there are dozens, and I might even go as far to say hundreds and thousands of small cattle tanks that dot the landscape that are perfect for migrating waterfowl. Um, whether these ducks show up overnight and are just waiting to rest, or they actually end up living out there for a couple weeks at a time, um, a large portion of the duck hunting that occurs in Arizona is just through jumping takes. Um, to do that, typically people will go ahead and scout it out on a map or Google Earth ahead of time, draw out a little driving route, you know, a little driving uh, route, excuse me, between a handful of different tanks. And when they arrive on the tank, if they can get a good vantage point without scaring off the ducks, um, some people do use binoculars to see what's going on, but a lot of people will go ahead and put in some sort of stock or maybe even a belly crawl if they're a little little excited about it, and crawl up the edge or the berm of the tank. And as soon as they stand up, those ducks typically take off off the water, and then you have your opportunity at some of the birds. Um, That's usually what's known as tank jumping. And for a lot of the early waterfowlers, it's a decent way to get introduced to the uh, the, the, the sport of waterfowling itself. 
Um, some people might say that that's not really duck hunting and whether you agree or disagree, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you, you are following the laws and most importantly, you know, you're having a good time and harvesting some ducks as well too. Right. Right. Um, aside from tank jumping, um, like you mentioned, waterfowl and duck hunting can be a very, um, decoy or gear intensive sport, but it doesn't always have to be. Um, especially here in Arizona in the late season in January, ducks don't necessarily want to be in those huge groups of a thousand or two thousand birds. A lot of them are looking for just a little refuge by themselves where they can hang out, you know, finish out the rest of the, uh, you know, the winter migration before they return to the spring um, breeding grounds. And so later in the year, some of the best decoy strategies um, are what we call like, you know, small water spreads where you might only have a half dozen, two or three decoys that you set out in a small little secluded area, um, basically telling the ducks that, hey, you know what, there might not be a thousand birds here, but there's a handful of us that have found a safe haven. Come and hang on out with us. So a pretty, you know, a pretty deadly or a pretty you know, good decoy spread could consist of three to four um, decoys maybe one or two motion decoys on a, on a jerk rig and then like a spinning wing decoy and call that good. And how about calling, um, if, you know, for a beginning water, waterfowler putting together a small kit of equipment, uh, what would you recommend outside of decoys um, regarding calls, things like that? Great question. And the answer is, I'm going to kind of answer that question with a joke, but the most important conservation tool in the sport of waterfowling is a duck call in the hands of an inexperienced hunter. <laughs> and it's kind of a joke that goes to say that if you don't know what you're doing with a duck call, just leave it at home. You're still going to have a great day. You're still going to decoy ducks and you're not going to scare them away. So some people believe that you have to have a duck call and that's the only way you're going to get them in. Um, the reality of it is that it's not necessary. Um, it, it might be helpful in some scenarios, but by no means do you have to be an expert duck caller mm -hmm. in order to go out and have a good day decoying birds. Um, most commonly when we think of, you know, a duck call is going to be that hen mallard call and that, you know, stereotypical quack itself. Um, but aside from that, most people might not know this, you know, for the, or at least for the average waterfowler, but, only hen ducks quack. So only hens, only the females quack. The other half of all ducks make some sort or variation of a whistling noise. So widgeon make that iconic. Um, the mallard drake makes more of a me, 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 me. And what I'm trying to get at is that you don't have to be a perfect duck caller to blow a quacking duck call when you can blow one of the duck whistles instead, that pretty much any kid out there can make sound good. So whether you do use a hen duck call, whether you use a, you know, a drake whistle, or whether you just sit there and provide a little motion in the decoys itself, you're going to figure out something that works. Um, sometimes myself, and you know, I will self-profess that I am a decoy <laughs> and calling a holic, if you will, um, sometimes those birds, they just, they don't want to be called that. They don't want to be quacked at. They don't want to hear a single thing. And as painful as it is halfway through the morning, we'll go ahead and put our calls away in our jackets, not touch them and end up having a great rest of the day as well too. So it's really more about reading the birds and figuring out what they want. But at a baseline, six decoys, a good pair of waders, a jerk rig and a shotgun will get you farther than any fancy duck boat ever will. And what, what is a jerk rig, Colin? Huh. I guess I should provide a little context on that. The name itself might be a little misleading. Um, a jerk rig is an easy way to add some motion to your decoy spread. Um, put a little context on that. When ducks are flying over at 100 yards, 200 yards high above your decoys, they probably can't actually see the little decoy itself floating on the water. But what they can see are the ripples that are coming off it when live ducks are moving. If you ever notice ducks in water, they don't just sit there perfectly still. They're moving around, they're dabbling, mm -hmm. they're feeding, they're quacking, they're preening, whatever they're doing. And that puts ripples on the water. And anybody can see ripples on the water from 100 yards away, no problem. 
So one of the more important tactics when it comes to duck hunting is putting some sort of motion in your spread to get that water rippling and get that water moving. So a jerk cord is as simple as a, a piece of string or a small rope that is attached to one or more decoys out in the spread with an anchor so that it's not going to move around too much. And it runs back to the blind and sits in your hand. And when at will, you can go ahead and jerk on that cord itself and move or bob around the little decoy out in the spread, providing some ripples and a little bit of movement. Um, some jerk rigs get really complex where they have, um, you know, they might have four or five decoys that can all attach to it. Um, there might be an anchor with a little, you know, like a bungee cord to give it a little extra spring as well, too. But we've gotten away with something as easy as just, you know, some um, basic cordage tied to a rock with a decoy hooked on halfway. And all you need is just a little bit of motion to get those ducks attention. Well, that, that's an excellent explanation, Colin. Thank you. Uh, man, I got to tell you, your, your your knowledge on, on in waterfowling, it just it blows me away. Um, and yeah, it's I already knew that, but somehow it still surprises me. Um, I guess. You know, as, as you put it, sure, you don't need um, a ton of gear. Um, I like that short list you gave. But I guess the one last um, what I would call obstacle to being a successful waterfowler are the hours. I don't know of any other hunt that you have to get up so damned early for. And quite honestly, man, as much as you do this, I don't know how you maintain a full-time job and, and, and a home life. It, it's just ridiculous how early you have to be out there to, to do this. You're not wrong about that part. You might be able to get away with six decoys and, you know, a jerk rig when it comes to hunting, but there is no alternative for waking up early and being out in the duck marsh before everybody else to make sure that you're there and ready for that first flight of ducks. And that's, you know, that, that's a part of it. Um, that's also what separates, you know, the dedicated hunters from kind of just the average everyday Joe itself. But it's really a big part of it. Um, I am really blessed and lucky to have a wonderful wife who is very supportive and understanding. And although she doesn't hunt herself, she goes above and beyond to make it possible to, for me to do a lot of the activities that I do. Um, she's also awesome with the dogs as well, too. That's, uh, that's not something we haven't covered quite yet. But just as much as waterfowlers love decoys, Duck hunters love their dogs even more, and there's nothing more valuable to a duck hunter than a well-trained retriever. And of course, Labrador retrievers, black labs specifically, are the best for this type of job. Now, hold, hold on, hold on. I feel like I feel like you're not doing Rufus justice here. <laughs> oh, you're right about that. I, uh, I do have a wonderfully trained black lab who is just, at, you know, driven to retrieve ducks a day and night. But to your point, um, my, my old hunting dog, Rufus, who is still kicking at 11 years old, um, he is a mutt, for lack of a better word. He is about a German shepherd mixed with an Akita or somewhere in between there. And that dog loves to retrieve quackers. There's no line about that. <laughs> So whether it's a black lab that has been bred for the last 500 years to do this or a rescue dog that I picked up, you know, halfway between Tucson and Mexico, um, any dog can hunt and any dog can retrieve. And, you know, really it's about training them, getting them excited and uh, you know, making sure that they have a good time out there as well, too. Mm -hmm. um, for anybody that knows me, I'm sure they've seen pictures of Rufus, but he uh, he's one heck of a character when it comes to duck hunting. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that dog. He's, he's something special. <laughs> he is. He's well, a cool dog. All right. So we, I think we've covered just about all of at least the basics of it. But let's talk about blinds just a little bit because I've hunted out of some really elaborate blinds. But most of the hunting I've done was just out of blinds that I threw together on the spot. You want to elaborate on that just a little bit? Would love to. In my opinion, that is going to be the most important aspect of the hunt itself. Once you've scouted an area, once you've figured out where you need to be, um, finding and building a good blind or good concealment is going to really provide a lot of success or take away from the overall experience. Um, some blinds are fancy. Some blinds are basic. I have hunted ducks sitting in the mud on the side of a ditch and have done fantastic. 
Um, I've also hunted ducks in, you know, multiple thousands of dollar blinds that have taken, you know, 25 hours to build and done fantastic there too. But the name of the game is concealment and not letting the ducks see you move. So to your point, um, your typical driftwood blind, right? Where you just show up in the morning, you go ahead and drag a couple big sticks or maybe a couple fallen over logs or trees together and maybe even get like a little stool to sit on. That can work great because it's breaking up the movement. It's providing some shadows. And most importantly, it looks natural as well too. Um, ducks are a very unique animal in the sense that they derive a lot of their sense of security from eyesight. And what I mean by that is when ducks are flying around looking for a safe place to land or a good place to land, they're not using their nose or their sense of smell like the vast majority of other game animals do. Um, for any big game hunter out there, they know that scent in the wind is one of the most important things when it comes to making a stock on, a, you know, an elk or a deer. Um, but for ducks, it's always going to be about their eyesight and most importantly, the movement. Um, I'll share the actual actual science and biology. Um, I'll, I'll, let, I'll leave it, I should say, to a smarter person to share about this, the science and the biology behind it. But essentially, those ducks have so many rods and cones in their eyes that they can pick out the slightest movement or twitch on a landscape from 100 yards high while they're flying over going 40 miles an hour. Um, ducks are somewhat colorblind in the sense that colors don't play quite as an important role to them that some other animals do, but it's really all about that movement. So if you can stay still, there's not really even a huge need for a blind itself, but assuming you got some kids, maybe an inexperienced hunter, um, a black lab who likes to wag her tail when the birds fly over, um, having some sort of concealment from that movement is really going to be critical. Um, one of the more common types of way to hunt ducks is from a layout blind, which is essentially like a small sleeping bag with some mechanical doors that you can flip open and pop out of. So whether you're hunting like a cut cornfield or an alfalfa field, or you're just on the bank of a river, um, a lot of people will use those layout blinds to really conceal them and a lot of their movement as well, too. Right. Yeah. And I guess I I, I, I do feel like we've done a really good job of, of covering all the basics. But one other thing I'll throw out there that I think is helpful and, and you're welcome to speak on it if you like is is some sort of boat. It's not necessary, but it will open up opportunities to hunt new areas. And that's a, a, a canoe, an actual boat, a kayak, something you can throw some gear in, either drag behind you or paddle out to a spot. Do you have any thoughts on that? Amen. I'll leave it at that. It's it's important. Um, boats are not required to hunt ducks, but just like you said, they open up a lot more possibilities and a lot more area as well. Because waterfowl, it's in their name, they like the water, um, they want to be places where other people can't be and they can't be disturbed. So whether that's deep water, whether that's through flooded trees or sticks or the marsh itself, ducks are usually found in places where most people can't get to. Um, a kayak is probably going to be the most one of the most helpful pieces of gear when it comes to scouting and finding new ducks. Um, if you want to go out and spend $50,000 on a big, beautiful boat, be my guest. That's a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. But just having something where you can paddle yourself, your dog, and six decoys out where other people can't get to is one of the most beneficial items itself and really will open up just so much new terrain and opportunity when it comes to hunting. And as a side note, for uh, people like me who hunt all the time, um, it's a lot easier using a boat than dragging a sled or walking you know, 24 decoys over your shoulder for two miles. Boats make life much, much easier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Colin, can you think of anything else that we've left out as far as the basics go? What, what could help new hunters or new hunters to the state? No. How do you think we've done it? No. I, you know, the, the one thing that I would end on is the importance of mentorship when it comes to duck hunting. Um, duck hunting is not easy. And, you know, especially if you want to get good at it, it takes practice. So instead of beating your head against the wall and getting frustrated with it, reach out to some of those local people in your area 
whether it's a Ducks Unlimited member, whether it's another member of a conservation group, um, a game warden, part of the state themselves, or just a friend or somebody you know off Facebook who duck hunts, um, reach out, offer your services, be willing to help, help with the gas money, help with the driving, help with the scouting, help with the hauling, the decoys and the gear, and really learn from somebody else. That is the fastest way to get up to speed when it comes to duck hunting versus figuring it out the hard way, figuring out what doesn't work or trying to sit at home and watch YouTube videos. Um, really getting out there with somebody else as a mentor is going to be the most beneficial. And on the flip side of that, for people like myself who are experienced, take new people out duck hunting. That will ensure the future success of our sport, of the species themselves, more so than any other item out there. Take a new person out duck hunting for the first time in their life. I guarantee you, watching that first group of mallards decoy in, quacking the whole way, will instill something more powerful than any video, than any ad, than any conservation banner ever will. And really helping them understand that it's not just about the hunting, but it's about the conservation, it's about the habitat, it's about the community, it's about the culture, is really going to go a long ways when it comes to building the future and also building the future generation of waterfowler, somebody that's considerate, somebody that's helpful, and that really understands what's at stake on the overall table itself. That's great advice, man. Um, and and yeah, I, I you know just for folks listening, I'll, I'll say it that he's not just saying that. If it wasn't for Colin and a couple other waterfowling buddies of ours. Yeah, they're they're responsible for ninety percent of the birds I've got to bring home and, and enjoy. Um, so so he 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 walks the walk as well as just talks the talk. So so I appreciate that, Colin, and I appreciate everything you do in conservation. Uh, before I let you off the hook here, though, um, you know how much I enjoy cooking wild game. So I, I'd like to get a get a couple couple of not necessarily recipes, but just ways that you like to prepare per waterfowl. My Favorite, I would say, is going to be a pretty stereotypical one, and it's a good recipe for the Arizona waterfowler that's going to shoot teal, mallards, widgeon, or any of those smaller breasted birds. Um, and that's going to be just your typical duck poppers themselves. Um, super easy to make. Um, I like to do a variation where I'll go ahead and use some sort of melted cheese um, instead of uh, cream cheese itself. But I also like to use like a sweet pepper instead of a jalapeno. And so essentially you're stacking a sweet pepper, a little bit of melty cheese um, wrapped in bacon and grilling that with the duck breast, um, you know, until it gets to about medium rare and the bacon gets crispy is one of the best recipes out there for an introductory waterfowler. Um, one of my favorite recipes of all time is going to be duck sausage, like duck breakfast sausage, as goofy as that sounds. Um, we love saving up our ducks throughout the year and at the end of the year. And we've uh, we've had the, the, the privilege to make this one together a couple times, um, is at the end of the year, saving up those duck sausages, running them through the grinder, cutting it in with a little bit of pork fat, and then turning it into breakfast sausage. It goes really, really well in biscuits and gravy out in the blind for the next season. Yeah, I, I would say that breakfast sausage that we made a couple of years ago is by far the best breakfast sausage I've ever had in my life. And quite honestly, we weren't I don't think we were making it as a breakfast sausage. We were we were making it in links, but the leftover, when I just fried that up in a skillet, oh my god, it was amazing. It was fantastic. Yeah. I'll I'll add as well that uh, you know, all of this that comes with waterfowling, it's a pretty big world. Um and it can be as complicated as you want it, but one of the things that does come with it is how to treat each species individually in the kitchen. Um, some ducks have absolutely delicious skin and fat. And I mean, it's, it's, it, it showcases the bird other ducks, not so much, you know? Um, so it's it just, it's an interesting aspect of it that I really enjoy uh, learning about with, with these different species of birds, how to prepare them in the kitchen. It is, it's very unique and it's, I would say it's more unique than other big game in terms of preparation where if you have a grain-fed mallard, pintail, widgeon, that is some of the finest meat on this planet. And it should be plucked, seared, skin side down until the fat is rendered, basted into like a nice medium rare or rare itself, 
and then sliced just like a sirloin steak. And it's fantastic. It, there's a reason that, you know, uh, duck confit is one of the staples of the French kitchen itself. It's incredible table fare. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other side of things, you have diver ducks as well, too, which don't normally get the best notoriety for um, good table fare. But the canvas back, when it feeds on some of that wild celery and the submergent vegetation, um, that is regarded as one of the tastiest ducks in this entire world. And back in the era of the, the market hunting days, the canvas back from the Chesapeake Bay of Maryland was the type of meat to have in all of New York City, um, closely followed by the ruddy duck, which is regarded as a butterball of all ducks as well, too. So it's really cool to see the different species of ducks. And again, like you mentioned, you know, how they're handled, whether you keep the skin, whether you render the fat, do you breast it, do you slow cook it? And it really provides a lot of unique culinary opportunities. It does. It's a lot of fun. I enjoy it. That reminds me, man, it's, it's been uh, a while. I don't think we hunted together once last year. And then I, uh, I don't want to let this, this season slip by without getting out in a blind with you. So let's make sure we make that happen this year uh, sooner than later. Uh, if it's up to me. But with that said, man, I, I can't thank you enough for being here. Um, you have an immense amount of knowledge on this stuff, and uh, it's very generous of you to, to share it with folks. So thanks. I appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me on and letting me share the message of the, uh, you know, the, the, the DU mission itself. Um, I can't wait to get out in blind this year, and just please make sure that uh, your son's able to join us. And I really look forward to uh, shooting some ducks with him later this year. Absolutely, buddy. All right, man. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. Take care. All right. Well, I told you. I told you so. Colin is a wealth of information on on waterfowl hunting here in Arizona. Uh, He's one of the most dedicated uh, waterfowlers that I know. Uh, He is also one hell of a conservationist. And um, yeah, I'm lucky to have him as a friend. You know, Ducks Unlimited has a very, very rich history here in our country, and uh, they do a massive amount of good work for waterfowl, waterfowl habitat, and for hunters. So get out there, join up with your local chapter, get to know some of these fellas, uh, get out in the field and get in on this game. I'm telling you, it is a kick, and not only is it so much fun, it is some of the best table fare flying around out there in our skies or swimming around on our ponds and lakes. Um, yeah, it's just uh, it, it's it's a it's a fantastic endeavor. So I uh, I know you I know you enjoyed this, and uh, I will see you again in two weeks. In the meantime, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at podcast at azwildlife.org. Uh, I'm open to your comments, your criticisms, your critiques, uh, your ideas. I very much love hearing from you all. And uh, if you did enjoy the show, please take a moment to consider uh, giving us a five-star rating and or a comment. Uh, It really helps us. It helps get the show out to other folks. And that's a good thing. So with that, we'll see you soon. And thanks for listening.